Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology. My name is Tiasha Zaitz, and today we're going to talk about cybersecurity. I spoke with Lee Kim, Director of Privacy and Security and HIMSS. Lee is a licensed attorney and authors domestic and international works on topics that include information privacy, cybersecurity, law, and public policy. A new HIMSS survey released shows that 73% of IT security decision makers need increased funding to continue to be secure, effective, and compliant. The same as 2019, 2020 saw an increase in cybersecurity attacks. The cybersecurity firm WatchGuard predicts that cybercriminals have already started to create tools that can automate the manual aspects of spear phishing. So when it comes to cybersecurity, there's definitely a lot we should be thinking about as individuals. One approach to security is the so-called zero-trust network access, which is a security concept that requires all users, even those inside organizations' enterprise networks, to be authenticated, authorized, and continuously validated before being granted or keeping access to applications and data. According to Gartner, 60% of enterprises will be phased out of VPN networks in favor of zero-trust network access by 2023. The question here is, to which extent will the requirements for security further deteriorate the user experience with IT? I wanted to make this episode as informative and useful for everyone. So I talked to Lee about the basics of cybersecurity, what exactly is the meaning of end-to-end encryption, when does it matter, and also some other recommendations regarding how to be as mindful and careful as possible. Enjoy the show, and to browse through other episodes as well, go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. These interviews are now also published in the video form, so do check out the YouTube channel as well. Find the link in the show notes. Now, to Lee Kim. Lee, hi, thank you for joining me. I think cybersecurity is a very important and increasingly important topic in healthcare, and we need a lot more knowledge and general awareness about what it actually means. So I want this discussion to be as useful for everyone listening as as possible, which is also why I want us to go through some of the very basics of cybersecurity. Maybe just for a very brief uh, introduction, you've been the Director for Privacy and Security at HIMSS since 2013. Could you start with a 
Uh, short reflection of the evolution of cybersecurity in the last eight years. For example, I guess the most famous attack that the public knows more generally was the 2017 WannaCry ransomware attack that crippled more than 300,000 machines in 150 countries. And in one of your previous interviews, when you were commenting this, you said that it wasn't even that much of a complex attack, yet healthcare was severely crippled, especially in the NHS in the UK. Yes. So in terms of the evolution of healthcare cybersecurity, we've not had the benefit compared with other critical infrastructure sectors in terms of these being used to responding to cyber attacks or other things that may infringe upon our security. So certainly in the last 10 years, we've had concerns relating to various coordinated cyber attacks and other types of compromises that have hit the newswire, so to speak. And so while I can't make specific references to entities or anything of that sort, I can say that at least as of August of 2014, there was a coordinated cyber attack on a large hospital system And it was then that we were, essentially the alarm bell had rung, so to speak, in terms of healthcare being under attack by cyber attackers. And there was a new fear instilled amongst healthcare stakeholders for them to essentially raise their shields against cyber attackers. And since then, naturally, there's been an onslaught of various ransomware campaigns and other things as well that have given us pause and that have certainly in in stops and starts caused healthcare cybersecurity programs to grow sometimes not by design but due to circumstance a huge part of increasing cybersecurity defense is basically digital literacy so i want to just go through some of the very basic things for example why is end to end encryption so important. Why shouldn't you as a patient send your healthcare provider medical information through Gmail? Or why shouldn't healthcare providers perhaps have Gmail accounts set up for their practices? Sure. So again, um, not calling out specifics as to any particular company or their respective product or service. I could say that generally when you're dealing with digital health information exchange, what you want to look for, whether it's through a webmail service, such as those that you mentioned or otherwise, you do want to look for ideally end-to-end encryption. And what does that mean? That essentially means that the email message, for example, is encrypted at that one point on your end, and that using the same protocol Uh, Hopefully the receiving party has the same capabilities to receive that encrypted uh, message, for example, using TLS transport layer security. If both mail servers at both ends have the same capability, then sure, you can transmit relatively securely end-to-end. Of course, though, no security is 100%. There's always the risk of encryption being broken or data communications being eavesdropped. And certainly, there's an open question as to the security of each respective endpoint, whether it's from 
the position of someone sending it versus the other person receiving it. So a quick compare and contrast as well is let's compare email communications vis-a-vis something traditional such as the telephone. Typically, under most circumstances, it requires highly specialized equipment and authorization to tap into, for example, telephone communications as opposed to electronic communications, whereby electronic communications, there's always a risk of it being intercepted and cracked. And the strength of the encryption certainly does vary depending upon the means and methods by which to um, encrypt such communications. Another uh, communication tool is also communication apps on, on the phones. Last year, there was an increase in the offer of tools that are certified for healthcare. But why, for example, would you advise against the use of tools such as WhatsApp that do offer end-to-end encryption as well? Sure. So again, I can't publicly comment for or against or otherwise comment on a specific product or service. But nonetheless, fortunately, the Office for Civil Rights at Health and Human Services has issued guidance in terms of what kinds of communication apps may be used in the context of telehealth during our current health crisis during the COVID-19 pandemic. And their guidance certainly states that you can use uh, non-public facing communication products, and they do provide a few examples. So what's appropriate or what's not is certainly to be evaluated by counsel and compliance officers on a case-by-case um, basis. Certainly keep in mind, for example, the HIPAA safeguards that are required if you're in the U.S. or otherwise you're required to comply under U.S. law as to requirements such as automatic log-offs and encryption and things of that sort. And keep in mind just as well, if you are using any communication app, think about who may be, for example, unauthorized to view that communication. And as an example, viewing a message on a locked screen when it could be virtually anyone passing by. And certainly that may potentially be problematic if someone unauthorized were to see actual protected health information or something that's identifying as to an individual. So again, it certainly pays to not only do the due diligence in terms of the technical specifications, the user interface, but also some business due diligence as well as to how that company transacts information, the privacy and security, that respective information. Which basically refers exactly to the point of individuals being aware that maybe it's not just enough that the app offers end-to-end encryption, but they that they basically can unknowingly breach the security by having the messages seen on the phone. That's a really good point, especially in the, in the pandemic where the number of bring your own devices increased. And that's a big problem because even before the pandemic, I was looking at one of the reports from this year by the Office of Information Security, and it stated that the 82% of organizations used some form of bring your own device for employees and two thirds of those lacked malware protection entirely and relied upon endpoint software installation. The question here is, what would you advise to healthcare institutions in terms of the bring your own device protocols, security and recommendations? 
Sure. Now, as to bring your own device, it's a matter of, for example, does your organization permit that at all? There are certainly some healthcare organizations that absolutely do not permit that because essentially with BYOD, what do you have? You have a, in essence, a, a partition residing on that device that's essentially personal information and the other end apps. And the other side of it is workplace data and workplace apps and such. So that's a risk. Why are certain healthcare organizations against BYOD? Because there's maybe less assurance that the personal device might not be used by other people in a person's household or other people who may have access to that same device. But nonetheless, I do believe that in terms of BYOD, think of the biggest risks that may happen to that device. Think of, for example, how easily misplaced these small devices that are very powerful that can contain a lot of information or access a lot of information, how easy it is to misplace that device so that the number one safeguard really to have is some kind of system, whether it's mobile device management software or otherwise, where you can easily track and wipe that device, essentially the moment that it's that it's lost or a person in good faith can't find it. And especially if that person's traveling, I would also say that there should likely be, if travel is frequently a situation for people that may have BYOD devices, assuming your organization permits it, permits it, do encourage employees to actually quickly report if that device is lost or stolen, because especially if you're traveling and you're in a, you know, different environment, maybe you're in a different country. The stakes may be higher as to that lost or stolen data. So there needs to be that feedback loop between the, between that employee or contractor or whomever and the company. So I would say that's the number one advice that I would have in addition to expectations of privacy or lack thereof, which of course should be formulated in connection with your counsel and privacy officer and security officer. This year, HIMS published a report about the most pressing concerns for security leaders and 84% of respondents said that email introduces security or cybersecurity risk. So I want to go through a little bit of the basics about why is email so problematic. We started before with the end-to-end encryption, but um, the really big issue issue is phishing, which is the primary way that allows unauthorized personnel to enter inner systems. The challenge with phishing is that it's really hard to recognize if you're not vigilant about it. If, if you, It's very easy to just miss the phishing email if you're not trained to, to spot a phishy email. So again, what would your advice be to organizations regarding how to train their staff? And are you noticing that there's an increased awareness and uh, increased number of trainings happening in healthcare institutions with the rise of virtual and digital? Sure. Thank you. As to that, really, again, we have to think about email phishing and such in terms of where the risks are, where's the greatest chance where a person may fall prey to a phishing attack? And as to that, it certainly is when a person may may be more trusting of the content, or maybe they're distracted because they have multiple appointments and transactions happening in that same hour, half hour, minute in which they are trying to multitask. In terms of phishing and the policy of that and respective training, 
I would say it's really important for, especially when an email is received from the outside for your IT department to certainly flag anything that may appear to come from an external source so that one is perhaps a little bit more cautious so that one is aware and cognizant. And it certainly makes sense, I think, to even if in a quick second, a person has a little bit of hesitancy about whether or not an email may be authentic, even if it's just simply a, a sixth sense, so to speak, some kind of intuition, definitely feel free to, and again, hopefully your IT department has a mechanism for flagging phishing emails or for sending them a suspicious email rather than you are exploring on your own, because certainly you're exploring something on your own just out of curiosity might certainly inadvertently install malware or something else that's unwanted on your computer system or possibly comprise the network. So that's certainly a consideration. Now, as to the frequency of security awareness training, we've traditionally seen that healthcare organizations do security awareness training about once a year. But certainly with the rise in phishing attacks, there are a fair number of organizations that are conducting security awareness training exercises at least quarterly, um, if not monthly. And we've seen in especially larger healthcare organizations that there is more robust phishing metrics used to track those who may fall for phishing attempts to track the numbers, to also take proactive action in case a person falls prey to phishing. And so there's a level of sophistication there in addition to anything else that the organization may have on the back end to ensure that whatever may potentially be clicked on is is investigated further before that endpoint is allowed to access that remote website or whatever have you. I would say yes, but I would also err on the side of larger organizations are more with it, so to speak, than the smaller and medium organizations vis-a-vis their awareness programs. When it comes to phishing attacks, sometimes they include attachments that one shouldn't really open, or they can guide you to a website that looks legit, but is a phishing website, which is also why one of the advice or the guidelines some institutions have is to instruct users to always type in a false password in the website that requires a username and a password because the legit site will not take the false password, whereas a phishing site would. I thought that was a really interesting precaution to take. Do you perhaps have any other like very concrete examples of useful tactics for one to be mindful of what can or could be a phishing site or a phishing email? Sure, absolutely. Most phishing attempts that one may receive tend to be, at least in healthcare, reported to be phishing emails. And certainly some common hallmarks are things such as classically spelling and grammar, but notwithstanding that, it can be things such as links that seem to point to websites that are not reflected in the actual visible hyperlinked text in that email. So, for example, hovering over a link may reveal the true uh, URL as opposed to what might be simply shown to you in the visible underlined blue link for that hyperlink. Some other things too, though, is of course, if you aren't expecting an attachment, if you aren't expecting a certain email to the extent that other means of verification is available to you, such as you're calling someone that 
you may know, such as a vendor contact that you've done business with before, or a friend or a colleague, definitely do that before you you respond or you you take action. Because certainly the lure of the attackers essentially eliciting that exp- that response from you as soon as possible. And, and I can say that, of course, pol- follow the policies and procedures at your organization. If you do have to investigate anything, perhaps copy and paste a link, and you may want to see if it's permitted by your IT security department. But there are certainly websites out there that will investigate uh, a link for you and determine whether or not it's safe. It essentially runs a virtual sandbox of that instance in which you're uh, requesting the web content to load, and it can detect with some certainty whether or not it's it's good or not. But again, follow whatever your organization does mandate. And if you can, leave the investigations to your IT security team in that regard. One term that is perhaps not as widely known as phishing is whaling. And whaling is basically more sophisticated phishing that's aimed at C-level executive. How big of an issue, challenge is this in healthcare? In healthcare, of course, it's quite significant. According to the results of our 2020 HIM cybersecurity survey, at least 53% of our respondents indicated that whaling was responsible for a truly significant security incident. And what that means to the organization, of course, can vary, but something where the organization definitely feels as though it's been really quite compromised. So to that end, you might ask, okay, what's the motivation for doing so? The motivation for doing so can be that, for example, if something appears to come from the CEO of an organization, I'm certain that most employees and others who may receive the email may want to respond or act right away because they think that it's the person, essentially it's the head of the organization that's asking you to do X, Y, or Z, or that has a certain inquiry. Certainly too, if a person has authority over uh, bank accounts at an organization, such as in the accounts payable department or a CFO, even more so, then that person may have authority over others to induce them to do a certain action or to give up certain sensitive information, which is quite frequent. So I would say, yes, we don't have metrics in terms of all the healthcare organizations that exist and all the incidents that may occur, but it's quite easy to do. And certainly, whether it's a person from the outside trying to masquerade as the C-suite person, or whether it's that the fact that C-suite account person, that C-suite person's account has been compromised. And so it's a seemingly an internal email. That certainly, this is essentially the psychology behind why a phishing attack is much more effective if, if it were whaling, as you had mentioned. Cybersecurity is getting more complex, it's getting more sophisticated with new technologies, with AI, with the rising computing power. So is obviously uh, cybersecurity defense, but they go hand in hand. In that sense, I wonder to which extent do you think can we rely on technological solutions to make cybersecurity easier? And to which extent is this going to fall on the end users. Healthcare IT is already uh, quite unfriendly to the end users at the moment. Doctors are overburdened with all the passwords and everything. Uh, so I wonder what do the, the increased 
cybersecurity defense measures mean for the friendliness of the user experience with healthcare IT? Sure. So I think that the first question, though, was in terms of the assurance and reliability associated with these cutting edge technologies. And as to any of that, in terms of helping to safeguard our information and such, I think that there always needs to be some kind of feedback, human in the feedback loop, so to speak, in terms of whether that piece of technology, whatever it may be, is operating correctly as to whether or not there may be some kind of security bug or error. And that, above all, I believe is paramount because there are far too many entities that don't have a really great communication process or feedback process more accurately. And so as a result, the technology may be somewhat unusable the when technology doesn't work, the clinician or administrator, whomever, or even the patient may be fighting more with the technology than instead of getting or receiving care. So that's also a consideration as well. Now, in terms of user friendliness, that's something where we have to understand that security, ideally, if we were to do security and environment and under conditions where everything is ideal and correct, we would have this theoretical 100% security in which information is not traded with third parties at all. And in which the information as it were is essentially hermetically sealed, maybe never acquired by others or accessed in any way and just sits. But of course that's totally contradictory to healthcare and our receiving care or our giving care if we are on the clinician side. So I would say with respect to that, in addition to good security, you need to balance that a bit with availability. So cybersecurity, as we know, involves ensuring the confidentiality of information, but you need to balance that against, of course, the availability of the information. Can I get that information out? So as a result, your security controls may be pretty good in terms of stringency, but it can't be very tight in terms of the controls that you can't get access to it. That, of course, would defeat its its purpose, and that's certainly what you don't want to have. Now, in terms of user friendliness, I would certainly say that making the security solution as transparent as possible that doesn't disrupt what the end user is used to in terms of clicks or typing at things or functionality, if it's a shorter learning curve and not as drastic of a visual change or a functional change in terms of click here and type here, I think that would up the usability and the, frankly, the acceptance by the end user. And the same thing is true, I think, in terms of clinicians. They're used to a certain routine. They're used to certain clicks and uh, typing in of things and th- things like that. So both in terms of the visually what one is used to and also functionally in terms of the steps that they actually have to go through, I'd say keep it as minimal as possible, keep it consistent with their workflow so that it doesn't interfere, so that it's not just another thing. If it could be seamless and transparent, that's a total ideal. But if you have to have something affirmative in there where it's one or two steps by the end user, the clinician, make it very easy to do, make it so that it's there's no ambiguous ambiguity in terms of what needs to be done and make the documentation, of course, very clear and user-friendly as well in case someone needs help. And I think that those are the key ingredients to having something that's successful. 
Yeah, I guess that's a huge appeal to the software uh, providers. And I thought it was very informative to see that according to Gartner, 60% of enterprises will by 2023 phase out of VPNs in favor of zero trust networks, which the zero trust network access is a security concept that requires all users, even those inside the organizations to be authenticated, authorized and continue validating security to be able to access the data. So very complex approach, I guess, for the end users, if the software is not designed well. So the next obvious question in the realm of cybersecurity is, what about IT providers? Usually when we talk about cybersecurity, we talk about breaches to EHRs, the data being leaked because something happened in healthcare institutions. What about IT providers? How careful do you see they are or they should be in regards to their own employees and the way solutions are designed? Sure. So... It's an interesting question. Certainly in healthcare, we rely on <clears throat> many things that are outsourced. For example, we rely on third-party third vendors such as cloud service providers, managed uh, service providers as, as well. And not all of them are what they purport to be, even in accordance with their marketing literature and such. That certainly requires some level of due diligence, both from the business perspective and technical perspective to ensure that the this technology adheres to the functionality that you are expecting or that's attested to, so to speak, in the documentation or literature. It also stands to reason, though, that amongst the freedom to choose from a plethora of vendors and such, that you pick the best one for your organization that is has been in business for a while, who is familiar with your vertical that has plenty of customers, for example, in, in healthcare. And that in addition to their reputation in the field and the functionality and such and receiving a demo and sending them your hopefully set due diligence questionnaire in terms of what they're doing in terms of business and technology in terms of controls, hopefully you also get a read on them in terms of how they're performing in the marketplace, what your peers think of them and most importantly, I'd say if you decide to do business with them and enter into that contract, before you do so, check to see not only what kind of technical support they have for you, but also what kind of customer support there is. Because there are certain contracts that say nine to five, excluding holidays, but it's not 24 by seven. And if you're a very large institution where every single hour, every single minute is very critical and you have high volume of patients, no matter what kind of day it is, whether or not it's a business day, you may want to stick with the technology provider that is willing to provide you that 24 by 7 by 365 service. You may also, though, scrutinize them in terms of their response times as to technical requests, because again, um, unfortunately, it does happen that if you are stuck with the wrong technology provider, you may be uh, stuck with a, a technology solution that does not work well. And so you're, again, fighting with the technology and trying to even do a workaround should the technology solution not operate correctly in view of the provider not making a fix or upgrade or whatever have you. 
which kind of brings up the question of cost. If you get a premium service, you can expect more. And with the rising uh, demands in cybersecurity, how big of a financial burden do you assess this is going to be for healthcare providers. With digitalization, we do see that there's a rising demand for new specialists, new analysts, AI experts, and now there's also the cybersecurity and the funds that need to be allocated to that. Sure. So in terms of the funds allocated to cybersecurity, traditionally many healthcare organizations, except maybe those that are, again, on the larger side, tend to have relatively few dollars to de dedicate to healthcare cybersecurity. So what happens? Their IT footprint, their infrastructure suffers. It's old and aging and perhaps not maintained. There are a lot of legacy systems. And also in terms of cutting-edge technologies, such as the shift away from traditional antivirus to endpoint detection and response systems that are able to look at potential malware heuristically or thinking about things such as zero trust technology. It's not that there's a lack of know-how amongst healthcare stakeholders and including cybersecurity professionals in terms of what to do. It's a lack of means to procure what is cutting edge or to procure things that are desperately needed in terms of upgrading the infrastructure so it's not old, so it's not outdated, so it's not unsupported where the, frankly, the exploits against them stockpile over time. And so it's all the more easier for a system or net network to be breached. HIMSS is a global organization, but when we talk about the research about cybersecurity, it usually refers to the U.S. market. Do you by, by ha perhaps have any insight into what's the state of cybersecurity in healthcare in other markets, other countries as well? Sure. In terms of our, our research and such, and also our education, we certainly have global efforts to address essentially an issue that is shared amongst various countries in the world, not just simply in the U.S. And so as to that point, there are there is a lot of common ground that a lot of healthcare organizations have. And it's also safe to say that some sometimes some entities in non-U.S. countries, they may have quite good funding situations and other things whereby they're able to keep up their infrastructure and they may not have as much of a leg leg legacy problem. However, in some other countries, just our smaller organizations here, in some countries, the infrastructure may be more aging. There may be more of a legacy problem. Certainly ransomware has been a transnational kind of endemic It's been a transnational kind of problem. Phishing, of course, is a problem globally. So there are many ties that we can all learn from each other and exchange valuable information in, in that respect. I, I would simply say that in terms of how advanced technology, te technologically speaking, certain countries are, that certainly varies as well as the whether or not the infrastructure is new or not new. And certainly in terms of things that we have that are now vulnerabilities, such as our heavy dependence upon cloud. Some countries have relatively few cloud providers, so they may not necessarily share those uh, same concerns, or I should say even some continents, just simply cloud providers just really haven't made their 
presence there very much, and that's less of a concern. And instead, on-premises resources and the security of those things is much more of a concern. But I could say, by and large, the indicators of compromise may vary and the types of malware may vary a bit. But most things, I'd say, is is very similar in a way. And pretty much nowadays, anyone that's online is more or less a target, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, if we look at statistics of cyber attacks, it's increasing year on year. Last year, the number of attacks was higher than in 2019. So that, in a way, is not exactly a surprise, but it's still concerning. And I wonder, given that 2020 was for healthcare, especially break, a breaking point in terms of the speed of digitalization, how, what's your reflection today? on the year and everything that happened in the realms of cybersecurity? Sure. So as to that, I believe that in terms of cyber attacks and such on healthcare organizations, we are at an inflection point as far as that's concerned. Certainly cyber criminals and other threat actors are certainly aware that uh, a lot more people are doing, whether it's remote patient monitoring telemedicine or other things in which the various parties are remote, whereas before healthcare occurred primarily on premises, right? Within clinics, within on hospital grounds. There's more we're softer as a result. We have more more exposure to the outside. We're dealing with home systems, frankly, that may not necessarily have as robust security as on-premises. So I think that we are at a point where we've been at our worst in terms of vulnerability and exposure, but fortunately with the world getting more back to normal and certainly cybersecurity professionals having had some time to study the problem of having more poor of a porous perimeter for lack of better words, that's decentralized around various points. I think that we will get stronger. I think that we will get better and more unified. But certainly it's it's a period in which we are perhaps a little bit more vulnerable. But I would say that w- with things getting back to normal processes and such, that uh, we are on the upswing in terms of our strength. And so I just wanted to emphasize that certainly in terms of healthcare cybersecurity, it's not that a lot of organizations are weak. It's just simply that this has been a new challenge. And certainly, though, there are many organizations that have world-class or at least very top-shelf cybersecurity defenses in place. So healthcare is no longer that soft target target that we think that it is, but it's certainly going to be something that's different. And once the world is back to normal, we might see a new reality in terms of where patients are seeking care from, such as in the home, such as hospital at home programs, and also the new reality perhaps of clinicians being able to render care from many different places, not just simply from inside the clinic or the hospital. So that paradigm shift will certainly introduce new uh, problems. But again, the more time we have to study this and to mitigate things, the the better. 
Yeah, and raise awareness, which is exactly what we're doing. You sounded quite optimistic uh, in the last uh, answer, but I still want to ask, when I had an interview with Chris Bowen, who's a CEO of a, a healthcare IT company in the US, he said that, yes, uh, we're making progress in protection. So are the bad guys. We have a good, we have good technology, but the bad guys have good technology as well. So it's a race in terms of how can we be successful in protection. So as a last question, what are you optimistic about in terms of the, the development of cybersecurity? And on the other hand, what do you think we have to be perhaps more vigilant as a sort of a last message to the listeners and the audience? Sure, absolutely. Thank you. So in terms of what I'm optimistic about, I am optimistic about our robust technology advances in cybersecurity. We have a very significant volume of intellectual property, shall we say, to overcome the current present day limitations in terms of cybersecurity solutions. Our, for example, our AI leveraged solutions are getting more accurate and better and than, than, than before. And there's other innovations that will just simply help eliminate the frustration we've had of our traditional legacy cybersecurity solutions. Now, in terms of something that we need to improve, and again, that nice comparison that you drew between the people that are on the defense side and the people that are on the offense side, Certainly, if we can be better on the de defense side at information sharing, as well as education and training, we would certainly be much better prepared against cyber attacks of the present and in the future. If So as an example, if we, this is idealistic thinking, but if we had uh, cybersecurity training for professionals that occurred every week or every month, we certainly would be in a much better position than we are today where training for cybersecurity professionals is rather weak, either because they may not necessarily be supported by, the, by their organization in terms of time off or the funds to take such courses or so on and so forth. Certainly that's a concern. And in terms of information sharing too, we do a relatively poor job in some instances of sharing information within our organizations as it relates to cybersecurity, or even with external peers. I think that we need to take that a lot more seriously. I think that there needs to be a more unified and concerted effort, because I can assure you that those that are on the offensive side have a much deeper, more robust network, and with their skills and know-how and with the sharing of information. It's, they call it an asymmetric phenomenon for that reason, because right now it is unfortunately lopsided in terms of capabilities and such. So I guess the, the final call to action can be don't let your guards down and don't forget to keep on top of the trends, right? That's absolutely right. And to not just simply be, you can do information sharing, for example, and just simply be a receiver and contribute nothing. But does that really help others? Does that really help you in the end? People may be more willing to share with you if you have information to also give back and whether it's to agree by way of consensus that this threat is happening or to provide new information. So that's just simply how it goes. And we just need to find a way somehow to either motivate or 
incentivized appropriately. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. Faces of Digital Health is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. So if you're interested in exploring healthcare trends and innovation further, go to healthpodcastnetwork.com and browse through other podcasts as well. Stay tuned.